Now that we've prayed for them, I'm gonna pray for me. If you wanna bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, I pray. Lord, use me. Use my foolishness. Have your way with me. God, I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts for what you have to say. Lord, do what only you can do. We thank you, we love you, we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen, amen. Oh, my goodness. Grace and mercy, Lord. Oh, man. I shouldn't play any sports today. I'd just drop everything. Let's see, how are we doing? That's there, that goes there. Okay, they didn't get all spread out too bad. If, 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 the, if the whole sermon doesn't make sense, I'm sure there's a page out of place. So I apologize. Glory, Lord. All right, here we go. So I don't know about you, but I am built this way. I just um, am motivated and I, I've always wanted to, since I was a little kid, I've always wanted to be the best. No matter what it was that I did, I, I just was so, had such a desire to be the best. And so I was the kid that anytime I lost a game, anytime I lost anything, I was the kid that just was a, a mess. I was a puddle. I was crying. I'd cry myself to sleep. Hated losing. But that really came from a desire to be the best at whatever it was that I did. And anything that I wasn't the best at, I definitely didn't want to do anymore. That was how I was. Um, while I was though in middle school and high school, I had this incredible group of friends. We were very close, always together. Church, school, very close group of friends. And this group of friends was unbelievably musically talented. I cannot believe how much musical talent there was within my small group of friends. One of my friends, um, he went on to get a degree in jazz performance, incredible jazz musician. Another friend, she went on to be a worship leader at Elevation Church. They make a lot of the music that we play on Sundays that you hear on the radio, incredible worship leader. My best friend in the world is one of the most talented people I've ever met. He's the guy that he's like, I wanna be good at something and all of a sudden he's an expert and really good at it. Great singer, great guitar player. And we were all together, we were on the worship team basically from eighth grade on. Now my friends being so amazingly talented as they were, from the get-go, we're just really good at it. And then there's me, little pubescent Mason. I am, uh, I know three chords and my crackly middle school voice can hardly get through a song. And I'm like, why in the world am I on the worship team? I I'm, I'm far from the best. I don't even know if I'd consider myself good. Why am I doing this when I've got these friends just right here around me that are so much better than I am. I really struggled with not being the best. And so I was really in a time um, where I was considering quitting. And in this time that I was considering quitting, um, God really awakened me to this truth. He said, Mason, you're not on the worship team because you're the best. You're on the worship team because you love me and because you love to worship me. And honestly, the truth that God was downloading in me at that time was so important for so many parts of my life, way beyond just worship team, because there was this, this, life, defi this life belief, this defining belief in me that to engage in anything, I needed to be the best. And I'm so thankful that all those years ago, God started to break that down in me, 
teaching me that when it comes to doing something, engaging something, trying something, that all that matters is a couple of things. Did God tell me to do it? And do I enjoy it? And sometimes those two go together, but I, would, I can say confidently today, I don't know if I'd be a pastor if God didn't start teaching me this lesson all these years ago. Because I can get so sucked into the comparison trap. I wanna be the best, and then I get surrounded by really talented and amazing people, and I'm like, God, this can't be it for me. There's gotta be something else. But now I know. In fact, yesterday, I went and played golf, and I'm not telling you my score, but I learned I can engage with things and have fun with things. I don't have to be the best. I just listen, God, is this what you're calling me to? Do I enjoy it? It's a great, important life lesson for me to learn and a belief that I needed to die to, that I was able to die to. So today, I am so, so thankful um, for the privilege and the opportunity to get to bring the word to you this morning. I'm sure many of you were not ready to be done hearing Roger even just for this week, including me, but here I am and I'm, I'm so thankful to get to preach today. I'm so excited uh, for this series, Galatians Free at Last. I'm excited. Today I'm gonna be diving into the passage that we just heard Amber read, Galatians 1, 11 through 24. So if you have your Bibles, um, I'd encourage you, just open up there. We're gonna be, um, I'm gonna be referencing in that passage quite a bit today. I'm gonna be staying in there. Um, the deeper I dive into God's word, the, the more I study, the, the richer it becomes and the more real it becomes. As I look and see how God's word um, from, from cover to cover is, is connected and it's deep and it's like Hebrews says, it's living and it's active. It just, it speaks to, um, for me, the, the reality and the reliability of God's word to see how, how deep and rich it is. So I'm pumped today to get into it. So a little bit of background, a little bit of introduction to the book of Galatians, kind of gonna skim over a little bit of what Roger talked about last week. So part of Paul's, his, his primary purpose of writing the book of Galatians is to defend the gospel from people who would add, subtract, or dilute the gospel. Paul was preaching a Jesus plus nothing gospel. But in the book of Galatians, there's this group of people called the Judaizers who are preaching a Jesus plus gospel. They're saying for a Gentile to become a Christian, then they need Jesus plus, they have to follow some of these Jewish laws. For example, Jewish food laws and circumcision. We learned this last week. The thing about the Judaizers though was that for them to legitimize their message, not only did they preach their Jesus plus gospel or message, but they, they also went after Paul to legitimize their own reasoning and their own argument and their own message, they went after Paul and his authority and his message. Those are the two things that they attacked when they attacked Paul. They attacked his message, his gospel, and they attacked his authority. When it came to Paul's gospel, and last week uh, we read Galatians 1.10, and Paul says, am I trying to please men or please God? And it's this rhetorical question. He's saying, I'm trying to please God, obviously, but the reason he said that is because the Judaizers very likely were saying, Paul, you're, you're watering down the gospel. You're trying to make it too easy for these Gentiles to get in. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. This is just what the gospel is. I'm not trying to make it easier. They also went after Paul's authority, his, his authority to preach the gospel. So what we know about Paul is that he had very strong ties 
to Judaism, but Paul did not have strong ties to the Jerusalem church. And what you need to understand is the Jerusalem church was kind of existed in the early church as, as the head and the highest authority on all things um, theological and, and the message that was kind of the, the theological center of the early church. And the authority that the Jerusalem church had was derived from the apostles that stood over the Jerusalem church. James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, the, the apostle that Jesus calls the rock he would build his church on. And so all that, you know, there's this belief that the true gospel comes from the Jerusalem church. We also need to understand, just quickly, is that an apostle defined, as Paul and the first century Christians would understand, an apostle is a person that witnessed, physically witnessed, the resurrected Jesus. So we're talking about the, the disciples. We're talking about James, the brother of Jesus. We're talking about the 500 who witnessed the resurrected Jesus before he was um, ascended into heaven. So the Judaizers, their argument was that Paul was not an apostle. And furthermore, their argument was Paul was not connected very well at all to the Jerusalem church or to the apostles. So if he is one, not an apostle, and two, not connected to the apostles or to the church, then how could he be the one to preach this pure gospel, i.e. the Judaizers legitimizing their own message to the Galatians? So today in Galatians 1, 11 through 24, Paul's, his goal and, and, and Paul, his intention in writing is primarily to defend his authority, is to defend the fact that he has been given the authority by God to preach the gospel to the Galatians and to the Gentiles. This is the, the argument that he's trying to make. So today, and, and the way he uses this argument, the way he argues is looking at his own life. He opens up kind of his testimony, tells his conversion story to prove his own authority. So today, as we look at God's word, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at one, the stages of Paul's life that he kind of expounds on in this passage and that, that speak to his authority to see how he uses them to support his gospel and authority. But lastly, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Paul's testimony and we're gonna see how it challenges us to, to change and to grow and to live for the Lord. I'm super excited. So where we're gonna start looking at the different stages of Paul's life is first, we're gonna be looking at Paul the Pharisee. We're gonna be looking at Paul the Pharisee. So if you have your Bibles open, we're gonna be in Galatians uh, chapter one, verses 13 and 14. Here Paul says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So I wanna kind of pinpoint verse 14. There's two points that Paul makes about himself in verse 14. He says, first, he was advancing beyond his years in Judaism. And second, he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. So I'm gonna kind of break down these two. So first he was advancing in Judaism. And in Acts chapter 22, verse three, Paul reveals that he stuttered, studied under this guy named Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel was one of the most influential rabbis of his day, would have been like one of the top teachers in the land of Israel. Not only was he like very prominent in his time, but Gamaliel actually had a, a very large influence over modern Ju Judaism even today. But for Paul to be a student of one of the top teachers in Israel, I don't even think there's a comparison in our culture for the kind of honor that that would be, 
There was almost no higher honor in, 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 in Jewish culture than to be asked to study under a rabbi and to not only to study under one of the most influential, greatest teachers in Israel. So that speaks to us that Paul was an unbelievably brilliant dude. He, and, and, and when we read his, uh, his writings in the epistles, I think that becomes pretty obvious. The second part Paul talks about, he says he's extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. When we look at verse 13, Paul reminds us that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Here's what we need to understand. In first century Phariseeism, in the tradition of Pharisees, there was this tradition of zeal. And many of you know this in, in, biblical, in, in the Bible, there's this idea of zeal. And this idea of zeal was tied to the idea of protecting the law, protecting the Torah, fighting for the purity of the nation of Israel, using violence, if necessary, to point the people back to God. And there's these key um, people, these key examples in the Old Testament of what zeal looked like. First, there's this guy Phineas in Numbers chapter 25 that you read about. God didn't want the people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel mixing with the Moabites. And the Numbers 25 says that Phineas was full of zeal and he saw a Hebrew man and a Moabite woman mixing it up. So he drove a spear right through their bellies, which is graphic and crazy. Um, but, the, but in that story, it says that, that, that God, God's wrath is satisfied and that he's um, thankful for the, the zeal of Phineas to obey the Lord and his wrath is turned away from Israel. Another example of zeal is in 1 Kings 18, the famous Bible story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And it's God versus Baal. Who's the real God? And they have the, the, the two bulls that are offered. And it's like, whoever's God consumes the bull with fire is the real God. And Yahweh, our God, he shows up and he consumes the bull. And Elijah, after this, he slaughters 450 prophets of Baal as an act of trying to purge Israel from its idolatry and point it back to God. They're key examples of violence, but the, but the purpose of it is to defend the truth, to defend God, and turn the people back to God. This is the tradition that Paul is following as a Pharisee in the first century. Going back to the Maccabean period to them, they felt that it was, it was biblical and right and admirable to persecute and to violently oppose the Christians because to them, the Christians were like the Baal worshipers. The Christians were like the, peop the people in Numbers 25 who are disobeying God. They need to fight for the, the truth and they need the people to follow the law. That would have been Paul's perspective and the Pharisees' perspective. What he was doing was right in his eyes and he had zeal while he was doing it. So how does this serve Paul's argument? Why does Paul bring this part of his life up? I think there's two reasons. One, in his argument against the Judaizers, the Judaizers are claiming this Jewish superiority, this idea that we know how to apply the Jewish faith to this new um, following Christ. And so, because we come from Jerusalem and the apostles from Jerusalem, we know how to apply it and Paul doesn't. And Paul's making this point. Man, I'm, I, am, I was far advanced, anybody my own age. I studied under the top teachers in the land in, in, in Judaism and knowing the law and knowing the scriptures. If you wanna know somebody who can apply the Jewish faith to the Christian faith, Paul is saying to the Galatians, look no further than me. So there's that part of the argument. The second leads us into our next point where I think Paul is making an appeal to himself as, as a prophet, speaking of himself in the terms of zeal. 
looking at the story of Elijah. So next we're gonna be looking at Paul the prophet. In verse 15, Paul says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. When Paul says this in verse 15, he is describing himself in prophetic terms in the same vein as a prophet. Looking at Isaiah 49 verse one, he says of himself, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Paul speak of, speaks of himself in prophetic terms. Verses 16 and 17, moving forward, says, when God revealed his son to me, I did not rush to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia and later I returned to the city of Damascus. So as I was studying, I found this journal article written by N.T. Wright, who's one of the most prominent pastors and scholars of our day. And he wrote this article called Paul, Arabia, and Elijah. And in this article, N.T. Wright proposes that Paul is, he, that Paul is intentionally paralleling himself with the prophet Elijah. And here's how we get there. In Galatians chapter four, in the same book, verse 25, Paul locates Mount Sinai in Arabia. He says, um, speaking about this, this analogy between Hagar and Sarah, he says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. In the New Testament, there's two uses of the word Arabia. Galatians chapter one and Galatians chapter four, both used by Paul. And Arabia is kind of an ambiguous, large term. In the first century, we don't necessarily know what region exactly he's referencing, but we do know for certain that when Paul references Arabia, he locates Mount Sinai there. Then we turn to and understanding what is Mount Sinai? It is the Mount of God. It's where God gave the 10 commandments to Moses. Time and again, God reveals himself to man there on Mount Sinai. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we were just hearing about Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal in chapter 18. In chapter 19, we see Elijah is forced to flee the country because King Ahaz and Queen Jezebel, they're out for his life. And so Elijah, he runs and runs and runs and he ends up at Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And it's there that God reveals himself and speaks to Elijah in a whisper. And Elijah's all broken down. He's just like, Lord, I've been serving you with zeal, doing exactly what you want me to do, trying to turn the people towards you. And now here I am, I'm the only one left, it feels like. And then God speaks to him in a whisper. And, and out of his zeal, God gives him a new direction, tells him these people that he needs to anoint king of Syria and Israel and the prophet Elisha that will precede him. And then, and then God sends Elijah to Damascus. The parallels are insane between that Paul is speaking of himself saying, I went to Arabia. After zealously serving the Lord, I thought God sends me to Arabia to Mount Sinai, and then to Damascus. So what is Paul doing? Verses 15, verses 16 and 17, Paul is intentionally paralleling himself with the prophets, speaking of himself in prophetic terms, paralleling his life experience to that of Elijah. And here's what he's saying to the Judaizers. He's saying, hey, Judaizers, as God called the prophets before they were born and appointed them, so he has called and appointed me and chosen me. I followed in the footsteps of the great prophet Elijah who zealously served the Lord, whose direction was turned at Mount Sinai and sent to Damascus. I have the authority 
of the prophets. This is the point that Paul is trying to make to the Galatians, to the Judaizers. The last point that Paul, the last part of his life that he is appealing his authority to is Paul the apostle. Paul the apostle. So verse 17, reading again, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. We can kind of deduce through the wording that Paul claims himself to be an apostle. There's apostles before him, but he was, he is an apostle. When we look at verses 11 and 12, this is kind of the, the center, the most important point of Paul's entire argument. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. When we look at 1 Corinthians 15, six through eight, Paul tells the story of these people who Jesus physically appeared to in his resurrected body. He talks about the disciples, James, the brother of Jesus and the 500. And then Paul says, lastly, he revealed himself to me. In verse 12 of Galatians 1, he says, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. That helps us understand how Paul means that. And that Paul is saying that he was the last one to experience and to witness physically the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus specially revealed himself to Paul to preach to the Gentiles, but to anoint him with the authority of an apostle. This is what Paul is trying to say. This is the argument that he's making. And verses 11 and 12 are the most important part of Paul's argument. It's why he mentions over and over again, looking at, again at verses 18 through 24, Paul keeps making these comments about how he distanced himself from Jerusalem. Even when he went for 15 days to meet with, with Paul and with, uh, or with Peter and with James, the brother of Jesus, he's trying to downplay how little experience he had both with the apostles and with the Jerusalem church. Because the point he's trying to make in verses 11 and 12 to the Galatians and to the Judaizers is that his authority and his gospel came from no one else and nowhere else. No person, no apostle, no human reason. Reasoning, his gospel and his authority come straight and directly from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the point that Paul is trying to make. That is the purpose of him writing Galatians 1, 11 through 24. But as I've reflected, looking at this passage, I, 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 I had a wonderful time getting to know, learning all of this stuff, was blown away by the detail by the references, by how God's word just came alive and that it's not all these different books just standing alone, but connecting to each other and, and, and working together in perfect harmony, showing me that, man, God's word is true and it's alive. And as I was studying, I also spent a lot of time reflecting on this guy, Paul. I had a lot of time to think about him because he was just talking about himself. Some of my biggest takeaways though, as I thought about Paul were these. First off was just Paul's brilliant mind. There was this uh, source that I read that made this statement that I, I thought was true, was that if, if, if Saul of Tarsus had never become, or let me read it actually, I'll, I'm gonna not do it justice. It's safe to surmise that the world would have heard of Saul of Tarsus had it never heard of Paul the apostle. And that's absolutely true. Paul was a brilliant mind. As much of an impact as he had as Paul the apostle defending the faith of Christ, I, I think he would have had quite an impact as a, as a Pharisee. 
because he was just so brilliant. His arguments layered, they cover every single base. He's referencing scripture. Paul was brilliant. Paul was also so passionate. Anytime that he found and, and held on to truth, he turned it into action. He did something about it. He defended it. Lastly, Paul had a steadfast belief. In a few weeks, we're gonna be here about Paul and his uh, experience with Peter. And I'm just blown away how gutsy he is, but he's steadfast in his belief. So much so that he calls out the rock that the church is built on saying, you hypocrite. But Paul knows what he's talking about. His steadfast belief is unbelievable. And I guess it would be probably pretty difficult to change Paul's mind because he's so smart and he's thought these things through and he fights with passion for the truth. The most striking thing to me though for Paul is his decision to follow Jesus. It's absolutely unbelievable. See, because Paul, Paul had to die to his life-defining belief. Paul died to his life-defining belief when he met and accepted Jesus. What I'm saying is, look, as we've looked at today, Paul was zealous for his belief in God and God's word apart from Jesus. Absolutely zealous and, 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 and all out for his belief in God's word apart from Jesus. Paul was fighting against Christians who from the view of the Pharisees were tearing the, Jesus, the Jewish faith apart. So for Paul, just like Phineas, he's trying to drive a stake through those who would be perverting, perverting the faith in his mind. And before his conversion, Paul's most defining belief was not believing in Jesus. He was so convinced that this, this fake Messiah was a hoax and that what it was doing to their faith was terrible. And he was so convinced of this that he violently persecuted and attempted to destroy the Christians and the, and the Christian church because he was so convinced that Jesus wasn't it. And then we look at Paul's story in Acts 9 where he meets the Lord. And something to think about. I think for us today uh, in this wonderful, amazing, spirit-filled church, we're, we are used to and, and, and become, it becomes normal to see the miraculous happen, healings, God showing up. But for a Jew in the first century before Jesus, this was to have a, an experience with God was, was an unbelievable privilege, wasn't normal. And in Acts chapter nine, when Jesus um, reveals himself to Paul, Paul's thrown off his animal. And I love how it says, he says, who are you, Lord? And it gives me this sense, like Paul knew that he was in the presence of God. He was in the presence of deity. But instead of in God's presence, seeing God the Father, he sees Jesus the Son, the one that he's been fighting against, the one he's been so convinced was a fake, so convinced wasn't it. And how difficult would that be to have been so convinced and so sure that you fought against it with such like absolution and then to witness God and it's Jesus the son that you're staring at. Put yourself in his shoes. All that you had to lose by, by changing your mind, all that, that fell aside. But the truth is for Paul is that it was pretty simple. As soon as he saw what the truth really was, his life and his direction completely changed.
So my challenge and my question for you today is, is very, very simple. What part of yourself do you need to die to so that God can have his way in you? It's a very generic, very open, very probably question that you've heard before, but it rings so true today as we look at Paul's life and his story. What part of yourself do you need to die to today? Scripture speaks of it all the time, especially in the New Testament, this idea of dying to self, carrying your cross to follow Jesus, dying to self and coming alive in Christ. We are constantly called to this idea of dying to self. So today, is there maybe a life-defining belief that you need to die to? Is there a part of your life that you need to die to? And like Paul, it's, it's not simply just dying to, but it's inviting Jesus into the situation. It's inviting Jesus and opening your heart and letting him shine his light on the dark places. Letting him redeem every part of ourself, dying to self and coming alive in Jesus, just like Paul did. So for you, maybe there's some deeply held beliefs that God needs to undo in you and me today. Maybe some of you, have this motivation and this desire to be comfortable, to live a life where, man, everything goes well, where I'm comfortable, where I'm at peace. Those are good things. But the reality is that so many of us run after and are motivated to find this comfort. And in John 10, 10, Jesus promises that he came to give you life and life abundantly, life and life to the full. But we don't find life to the full by running after life to the full. We find life to the full and life abundant by chasing after the author of life, by surrendering our life to Jesus, by living a life of obedience that says, Jesus, where you go, I go, we all go. Where you stay, I'll stay. God, I'm willing to be as uncomfortable as you'll make me because I know that's the best place to be. I know that in the middle of your will, being obedient to you in everything that I say and that I do, God, no matter how it feels, Lord, that's where life to the full exists. Amen. Maybe some of you need to die to that motivation for comfort today and come alive to obedience to Jesus. Maybe some of you, myself included, need to die to uh, this preoccupation of trying to solve the world's problems. Sometimes I can be an armchair politician. I can be an armchair theologian thinking, sitting from my chair that I can fix all the world's problems. I think many of us in this room and in the church need to die to this idea. Because in reality, I think Jesus so desperately wants us to go from being occupied with that to being occupied with radical love and care of our neighbor, of our community, of the people in our workplace and every place that we inhabit that we're around people. If you wanna start seeing our world be healed and made whole, we do that by not being consumed with thoughts of trying to, you know, talking or thinking about things that we can affect when we can affect our world by loving our neighbor the way that Jesus did, caring for our neighbor the way that Jesus did, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, meeting every physical, emotional, mental, spiritual need. 
serving and loving the whole person. God, may the church be just occupied and come alive to this belief and motivation and die to the armchair theologians and the armchair, may God, may we get out of the stands and get in the game. Maybe today you need to die to an addiction or to a life controlling issue. I heard this said recently and it really resonated with me. Someone who was a former alcoholic, they said, man, alcohol was my God. And that really impacted me because I think that's true for so many things in our life. Is these, there's these habits or these addictions or these vices or these things in our life that control our thoughts, that control our movements, that control our plans because everything surrounds getting more of that thing. Maybe some of you need to die to an addiction or a life controlling issue today. Maybe some of you need to die to unforgiveness. Jesus says, if you can't forgive others, then I can't forgive you. Unforgiveness is a burden that we carry. We're trying to get back at the people that hurt us, that are hard to forgive. Maybe you need to die to unforgiveness today. Whatever it is that you need to die to, whatever belief, whatever um, habit, whatever it is, it takes humility. Saying, Lord, I, 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 I can't get there without you. I can't do it without you. I'm not perfect. I need to change. I need to grow. There's a, um, a passage, a prayer in Psalm 139 that comes to mind so often for me. The psalmist prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Maybe you're in this room and I'm asking you, what part of, you need, what part of your life do you need to die to? And you're thinking, ah, you know what? I'm good. You know, I got it all together. Good for you. But here's the thing. I think daily, daily, we need to pray this prayer. God, search my heart. Know my inmost thoughts. The scriptures say that God knows the groanings of your soul. He knows you deeper than you know yourself. And we need to be praying this prayer. God, Show me if there's any grievous way in me. Show me the things that I need to die to. Help me to be more aligned with you. Let's act on those things. Let's live for Christ. Let's die to self and come alive in Christ and, 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 and walk into and step into the full potential that God has for you and your life and your family and your workplace and our church and this community. Die to self and come alive to Christ. Prayer team, if you guys will come up, I am going to wrap up in prayer. Um, if you guys would stand, we're also gonna, I think, go into a time of worship. Um, but let's just pray that prayer over ourselves today. Lord, search me and know my heart. Search me and know my inmost thoughts. Show me if there's any grievous way in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. Lead me into full life, Lord. Let's die to self at the altars today and let's leave this building alive to the life and the purpose that Jesus has for each and every one of us, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the apostle Paul today, all that you, you did in him and through him. 
that as amazing and as brilliant and as, as impactful as he was, Lord, at the center of it was laying down a pretty big belief, laying down a pretty major part of himself. But the result of that was becoming one of the most impactful people to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus, awaken us to the potential that you have for us in this room. God, point out the things in us that we need to lay down at your feet. They may not even be bad things. They're just things that God has a different direction. And we need to just lay it down and say, Lord, where would you have me go? Where would you have me stay? What would you have me do? So that we can be awakened and come alive to all that you have for us. God, I pray that you would break us down and and put us back together in your image, in your way. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. Give us humility today. We would accept the words that you have to say, maybe the correction that you're needing to bring, Lord. God, we just lay our lives and ourselves down at your feet and just say, have your way. Father, let that be our our prayer and our heartbeat every day. Not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, not just when we're in the church building, but every morning, God, help us to wake up needing you to fill our cup, relying on you in every way to be formed more into the image of your son. We need you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.